Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the interest of full disclosure, uh, this message has nothing to do with Tina Turner. Uh, other than my shameless appropriation of a hit song title, uh, with which to label some thoughts that I want to share with you today on the heels of last week's passage about the wedding at Cana and also about uh, one of the most recognizable and also one of the most misunderstood chapters in the entire Bible, primarily due to its frequent use at weddings today. And that, of course, is none other than 1 Corinthians 13, otherwise known as the love chapter, and uh, is uh, undeniably one of the uh, most poetic, most beautiful things that St. Paul ever wrote that you'll ever read in the pages of, of Holy Scripture. But uh, when I say that this passage is uh, often misunderstood, I don't mean that it, it shouldn't be read at uh, uh, weddings, as I have done many times and am bound to do uh, again and again uh, off into the future. But rather, I say it because this passage, strictly speaking, is not about marriage, at least not per se specifically about marriage, and because as these words are read while couples stare at each other adoringly and join their lives together, what's often missed or ignored is the fact that 1 Corinthians 13 was actually written for people on the rocks, people who were not getting along with each other, people were struggling to even stay together in a church that was coming apart at the seams. And that church, of course, is the church of the ancient city of Corinth, which, as I said again at a Bible study just the other night, was uh, St. Paul's problem child as far as uh, churches went, which is really too bad because uh, Corinth uh, was just about the perfect place for a church in the middle of the first century because uh, of its location, uh, about 50 miles west of Athens uh, on the Isthmus of Corinth, which meant that it had access not to one but to two different harbors, uh, one leading out to the Aegean Sea and back to Asia Minor in the east, the other one leading out toward Italy and uh, the rest of Europe uh, to the west, making this, uh, it this hub, this crossroads for traders, for travelers, for people who came there from all over the world in this community that was obviously very rich in its diversity, meaning that if you could get Christianity to go in Corinth, then, man, there's just no telling how fast and how far it could spread to the rest of the world with all those people moving through there, not to mention more than a quarter of a million permanent residents at the time. And yet the church in the city of Corinth was as messed up as you could possibly imagine. In fact, if the question is, well, what was wrong with the Corinthian church? The answer would be, what wasn't? They had divisions in the Corinthian church and disagreements and disputes about a number of practices, including their relationships with unbelievers. There were power struggles in the church. There were different factions in the church. There was spiritual immaturity. There was sexual immorality in the church, which kind of goes with spiritual immaturity, but that's another sermon. There were lawsuits 
among the members of the Corinthian church. There, were, there was chaos in worship. There was uh, abuse of the Lord's Supper, questions about the resurrection, misuse of spiritual gifts, and it went on and on from there. Kind of reminds you of that great line from the movie Apollo 13, you know, where so many things went wrong that the flight director says, well, what do we got that's good? Well, all of that reaches Paul, who at this point is in the city of Ephesus, across the other side of the Aegean Sea, and it triggers this letter in which he says, hey, time out, church. Let's remember who we are here. And so 1 Corinthians, or St. Paul's first letter to the Christian church in the city of Corinth, written in the spring of the year 55, is the letter in which he just tackles all these issues one after another, one chapter after another, after another, laying out his uh, reasoning, giving his methodical arguments, plodding along uh, so that uh, they would listen to what he has to say, they would change their behavior and uh, just get this church patched up, not only for their own spiritual well-being, but for their witness to the rest of, of the world. And so in the first few chapters, he talks about their divisions with each other. In the next few chapters, he gets into the moral issues. In the next few chapters, he talks about uh, the worship issues. Finally, you get to chapter 12, and he compares the church members to parts of a human body. And he says, you are the body of Christ. You are the hands and feet of Jesus in the city of Corinth. Act like it. You have gifts. They're not all the same. But you can all play a part, except that none of this is going to work if you're not together in the one body of Christ chapter after chapter, argument after argument. And then comes 1 Corinthians 13, where you get this literary whiplash. And all of a sudden, the tone, the language radically changes. And you have this beautiful, poetic, lyrical, hymn-like passage of scripture known as the love chapter which sounds great at weddings. But if you read it in the context of the rest of this letter, you find yourself saying, who wrote this? What's it even doing here? Well, what St. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, including married people, including single people, including all the people, is that they can listen to everything that he has to say. They can do everything that he says do. They can change their behavior. They can do everything right. But if that church doesn't exist and operate in the context and in the atmosphere of love, the whole thing is going to be pointless. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I'm eloquent, if I have the gift of prophecy, but I don't have love, it's just noise. If I have faith, but I don't have love, it doesn't just diminish my impact, it eliminates my impact. You know, there are probably churches in this world where, you know, they do everything right. And the building's gorgeous and music is beautiful and, uh, you know, the sermons aren't too long. I mean, it's, it's all good. <laughs> and yet the atmosphere is so cold. I mean, you could ice skate down the center aisle. When I was a kid, my parents were good friends with this couple 
that had it all. I mean, you know, they had the money, the house, and traveled the world, the whole smash. When I grew up, my mother told me, they can't stand each other. They just stayed together, you know, for the package. I said, what? And frankly, you know, there are people outside the church, people out in the world that look at us, that look at Christians, you know, proclaiming, articulating the truth, doing a lot of things right, but they're not feeling the love. And so they're not coming to the church. And so the dirty little secret of 1 Corinthians 13, as beautiful as it is, is that it isn't just poetic. It's also very provocative. Because what Paul is doing here is not only talking about love, he's naming the sins of the Corinthian church and how unloving they really were. And he's comparing them to love. That's what's really going on here. So when he says that love is not arrogant, love is not rude, love is not self-seeking, he's taking them right back to their junk. And he's telling them, that ain't love. Well, you know, there's some things I want to share with you about love uh, so that this isn't just one of those, you know, go out and be nice to each other kinds of sermons. And one of them in case you don't know this or may have forgotten this, is that in the Greek New Testament, there are actually four different words that all get translated into love in English. So there, there's the word storge, which is the love of parents for children or children for parents. It's, it's family love and affection. There is the word eros, which is where we get the word erotic, which is romantic passionate love of a sexual nature. It's what gets them to the wedding. There is the word phileo, which is the love that friends have for each other. It's why we call Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, after phileo. And then there's the word agape. And agape is the highest form of love. And it refers to the love that comes from God. And agape is not simply a feeling or an affection. Agape love is a willful, decisive, unconditional, sacrificial commitment to another person. Agape Love for Jesus looks like not a heart, but a cross. That's agape. And this is important to know because, you know, somebody could come along into your life and say, hey, I love you. And what they're really saying is, eros, I'm attracted to you. I want to have sex with you. Or somebody could come to you and say, I love you. And what they're saying to you is, you know, I love you like a brother or sister. I love you like you're my friend forever. But the word that St. Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 is the word agape. I mean, all the way down through every single time. And what that tells you is that you can't do this thing called church 
and you can't do this thing called marriage, and you can't do this thing called life without God's love. See, when 1 Corinthians 13 gets read at weddings, you know, it, it seems to sound like it's a, it's a hymn in praise of human love. Agape is God's love that comes down and it gets us through our junk. No matter how messed up your life might be. And when you experience that kind of love, it comes into your life and it starts going out of your life, that's when you discover that sometimes this will require you to love somebody you don't even like very much. And of course, parents know this and children know this and coworkers know this and teachers know this and friends know this. You know, and so it, it really often is misunderstood. It really is a little bit trickier and a little bit, bit more complicated than, than you might think. But there's another thing about love that is important. And it's maybe the most important part of all. And it goes back to a conversation that uh, Jesus had with Peter after the resurrection, John 21, you might know it. Where uh, not once, but not twice, but three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers three times, yes, you know, I love you. As a matter of fact, most people think that uh, these three exchanges parallel the three times that Peter denied even knowing Jesus prior to the crucifixion. And so this is the, the, the triple reinstatement of Peter, which is a beautiful thing. But there's something else going on in addition to that. And this is what it is. When Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? What he says is, do you agape me? And when Peter answers the question, and says, I love you, what he says to Jesus is, I phileo you. And so Jesus asks the question a second time, do you agape me? And a second time, Peter answers the same way. He says, I phileo you. The third time in John 21, Jesus changes the question. And the third time when he says, do you love me? What he really said was, do you phileo me? And Peter says, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Whole thing gets lost in English because we only have one word for love instead of four. But what it means is that finally, this guy who denied even knowing Jesus, this guy who got it wrong so often, finally gets it right. And he says to his risen Lord, you know I love you, but I'm never going to love you like you love me with that perfect, complete, unconditional, sacrificial love that takes you all the way to your cross and that gets me through my junk no matter how messed up my life is ever going to be. Tomorrow I'm heading out to St. Louis uh, where I will be at our denomination's uh, seminary and uh, we'll be preaching at their uh, daily chapel service for three days in a row. Pray for them, please. <laughs> 
I will also be interviewing uh, four candidates for the position of associate pastor uh, here at St. Andrew. And as I thought a little bit about those interviews, uh, I recalled a survey that was made several years ago of church members across denominations where uh, church members were asked to identify the number one quality that they desired in a pastor. And uh, the list included things like uh, teaching and uh, leadership and administrative abilities and a bunch of other things were on the list. You know what came in? Number one, top of the list. The thing that people want more than anything else is a pastor who loves us. That was number one. Which is to say that, you know, even pastors, you know, can do everything right. But if it's not in the atmosphere of love, you know, it's just noise. So, by the way, I love you. <laughs> Make that clear. Now, I mean, who wants to be in a church where there's conflict? Nobody. Which is one of the reasons, you know, I'm very happy to be here in this congregation in Silver Spring, Maryland. And that brings us to the last point that Paul makes in uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where he says finally that faith, hope, and love abide at the end of the day, but the greatest of these is love. Well, why is that the case. Why is the greatest of these love? Because earlier in the chapter he says that love never ends. Well, how is it that love never ends? Why is it that the greatest of these is love? And that is because even in the midst of the wedding, he's not talking about my love or yours. He's talking about his love for us. That is the love that never fails. That is the love that never ends. And also because when you die, faith will end because it will turn to sight. And hope will end because it will find its fulfillment. But when faith and hope are gone, love endures. Love goes on here on earth and on into heaven forever. That is what agape has to do with your life, with your relationships, with your work, with our church. For the glory of God and for the healing and the hope of the world. And this concludes the love sermon. In the name of Jesus, amen.